0: Okay, if you got a Bible, make your way to Daniel chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. I got a really big one that I'll put here on screen so you can follow along there. If you're a guest with us, just want to say again, thank you so much for being here. You picked a good Sunday to come to church because we're starting a brand new series of talks today that I'm super excited about called God and Culture. Uh, And for the next six weeks, we're going to kind of sprint through this portion of your Bible that's named after its author because as I have studied Scripture, what I found is our boy Daniel wrote an incredibly helpful, helpful manual for how we can live in uh, of the culture that God has placed us. It's okay if you don't agree with me, but I believe that God has created you with a purpose and He's put you on this earth, in this time, in this location in order to accomplish something great. And it's going to bring you joy and Him glory. And what I think Daniel does is he helps us realize how that objective can look in a culture that's borderline hostile towards God. I don't think you can argue, at least from a point of credibility, that we as a society are drawing closer to God. Just watch the news. you know, you got school shootings, you got uh, work shootings, sexual assault, race relations, drug addiction, mental health disorders. The list could go on and on. Yet, what I find tragic about that is that people all over the world see things like that. They see our news. They see what's going on in our culture, and they wonder, where is God in all this? And the answer is, if you're a Christian, in you. God's Holy Spirit is alive in you, and you're supposed to help lead people to God in the middle of all the chaos that we find ourselves in. And the good news is, Daniel can help us with that. He can help point us to God and help teach us how we can lead others to Christ. Titled my message this morning, The Setup. It's a setup. If you have outstanding warrants, don't worry. It's not that kind of setup. You're safe for now. Setup I'm referring to is more comedic in nature. I don't know if you're a fan of stand-up comedy, but in comedy, the formula for success is there's a setup and a punchline. The setup is when you tell a story that's meant to get the audience moving in a certain direction. You're building anticipation and giving them an expectation of what will come next. But then the punchline is when you suddenly alter or change the direction in a way the listeners are not expecting, and it will hopefully elicit laughter. I'll do my best to give you an example. Uh, A few months ago, we went to uh, San Diego. I I took a group of of leaders from here to to get trained out there, and I don't know if you've ever been to the San Diego airport or not, but uh, you just never know what you're going to see. Okay, you're an hour from Vegas, roughly an hour from Los Angeles. There's just a lot of crazy things. I, I imagine you could say that about any airport, but in California specifically, a lot of crazy things that you're going to see. And a group of us were all sitting on a bus waiting to get to our rental car when a lady also got on the bus. And I didn't hear this part of the conversation, so there's that. Uh, but apparently the bus driver looked at her and said, good night. That is the ugliest baby I've ever seen as she was getting on with the baby. Again, can't verify that, but I'm told that's what was said. Well, in God's providence, this lady happened to just come back and and sit next to me. And it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that she was super upset. And I didn't know what was going on. So I just simply asked her, hey, is everything okay? And she said, no. Did you hear what the bus driver said to me? I was like, no, I I have no idea. And she said, well, it was very rude and it hurt my feelings. I said, well, you shouldn't put up with that. You should go up there and you know, ask for an apology. This is a public transportation. You shouldn't, you know, be ridiculed. And, and uh, she said, you know what? She thought about it. I said, you're absolutely right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go up there. My feelings were hurt. I'm going to ask for an apology. And so I set myself down. I said, you go. I said, here, let me hold your monkey. <laughs> it's a setup and a punchline. So they're... There's that. Uh, the, reason I bring, the reason I bring that up is I found that often our lives are just a series of setups. From my perspective, your setups are your talents, your resources, your opportunities, and most of us are uh, using our setups to ensure the people around us are moving the direction that we want to go, that they're moving in a way that will serve us. It's why we all tend to dress a certain way or talk a certain way. It's why we drive a certain type of car or want to live in a certain neighborhood. We have expectations about how the life should look around us, and it's all just a cultural setup in order to serve ourselves, which if there's a setup, then there's likely a punchline. And I believe the punchline of life occurs when you change or alter that direction of service. Instead of setting yourself up to be served, you figure out how you can serve the people that God has placed around you. Because at some point in your life, you're going to have to make a decision. Do I keep going the direction that I'm going right now? Do I go with the flow? Do I follow where everybody else is going? Or do I, at this moment, need to deliver my punchline? And just like in comedy, in life, timing is everything. The question I'm trying to answer today is when... And where do I need to deliver my punchline? Because what we're going to learn with Daniel is not every battle is worth fighting. There's an old saying that says you can win the battle, yet lose the war. And what I'm noticing specifically in Christianity is more often than not, we're losing our war with the world. We're fighting battles that are not worth fighting. Granted, we might be winning them, but at what cost? Because you know what else is true when people are fighting? When two people are fighting, there's one thing they're not doing, and that's listening. And if they're not listening, then how can we do what God has called us to do and accomplish the goals that Jesus has given us? You might remember that shortly before he raised into heaven, he said to go into all the world and teach them everything that I've commanded you and and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's infinitely more difficult when the people are not listening to you because they perceive you to be the enemy. Jesus never told us to impose our standards on non-believers. He never told us to try and legislate morality by creating a Christian nation. He never asked us to levy our traditions onto people who didn't adhere to our values. He said our mission is to win people over, not wipe them out. And so I feel like we have to navigate this delicate balance in in Christianity where the world expects conformity at God. He demands conviction and the world expects compromise, but God looks for character and that's a slippery slope because your convictions and your character don't have to match mine. I'll say it this way. Not all Christian convictions are constant. Going back to our comedy analogy, your setup is different than my setup. And where you need to deliver your punchline might be different than where God is calling me to deliver mine. Now, don't misunderstand me. I do believe there are some consistent uh, commands within Scripture, okay? There's that whole Ten Commandments thing that God gave, and then Jesus clarified that in the Sermon on the Mount and gave some Beatitudes and all of those things. And uh, what I've noticed is more often than not, though, God is way more concerned with why you're doing something than He is about the way and what you're doing, And so what I hope you'll discover with me over these next few weeks together is Daniel's story is a way for us to help spread the good news of Jesus Christ and compel people to live a life of purpose in a world that pays no attention to God's laws and often disparages those who do. But don't take my word for it, LeVar Burton, reading Rainbow. Never mind, okay? Okay. Get that out of there next time. Daniel chapter 1. Let's check it out. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylon and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. If you're curious as to what that looks like, look no <laughs> further, all right? <laughs> this, good. This, is, this is the Bible, Okay. <laughs> Trained these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was called Abednego. So here's our setup. We have a king in Israel. He's not a very good king. King Jehoiakim, his dad before him was not a very good king. His grandpa before him was not a very good king either. You can read all about it in Second Kings. But what you need to know about these kings is God repeatedly brought men called prophets to warn them that their evil deeds would not go unpunished. As king, they were supposed to be leading this people of God closer to him. But instead, they were doing things abhorrent in God's eyes. They were participating in acts of worship that were completely uh, heretical and false and just bad, killing children and all kinds of crazy stuff. So much so that they were participating in, in this stuff that the one true God showed up to them and said to them, y'all better stop collaborating and listen, but it didn't work. As, as uh, so you can see there in, in, in verse 2 that the Lord gave a different king, the king of Babylon, victory over Israel. Now, here's what you can't miss, that not only did God give Babylon victory, but it was also God who gave the holy things, the sacred objects from the temple, the temple that Solomon built. He he allowed those things, the the things that when you come to that spot in your Bible or you're reading about them, you just skip over that because you're like, why do I need to know about the sixth fold and the purple cur-? Like, what does a cubit even mean? Why are cherubim? Like, you skip over all that. But God allowed all of those things to be taken Uh, it was god who allowed uh, this king to to remove holy objects that were not supposed to be touched at all and god let him take them to his king not only that but what's super crazy is god instructed daniel through the inspiration of the holy spirit to record all that in scripture for us i mean if i were god i probably would have had the editors redact that out of the final account Like, I don't want to be the one who was held responsible and ascribed the blame for the fact that an even more wicked king defeated my wicked king. But the reason it's in there for us is because Daniel understood a very important principle, and that is God is in control of who is in control. Theologians call this the sovereignty of God, and it's important for us to understand, because in God's sovereign authority in the universe, there are no accidents. I don't know how you came in here today, but it wasn't coincidence. God brought you here for a reason. He wants some of you to know that your sorrow doesn't have to be wasted. Your calamity that you're going through might be God's calling. Your mishap might be God's mission. The same thing he told Joseph that that uh what some people intended for evil God's going to use for good. Jot this down if you're taking notes. Your setback might be God's set up. Whatever you're going through, your setback it might actually be a setup from God. I hope what you're noticing here in this passage from Daniel is despite what you've been told or despite what you've been heard uh or what you've heard, sometimes the innocent do suffer with the guilty. Sometimes bad things do happen to good people. Daniel was not marched to hundreds of miles to Babylon because he had sinned. God repeatedly had warned his kings of the consequences of rebelling against him, but they didn't listen. And now Daniel and his friends all suffer because of other people's wickedness. Sometimes that happens. Your sin never affects just you. You might think it's not that big of a deal and it's not hurting anybody, but again, it's not true. Daniel was caught up in the backwash of judgment, God's judgment, for other people's sin. And you might be too. But get this, God's rebuke might lead to your restoration. Because your setback might just be a set up from God. There's another guy besides Daniel who was uh, taken captive from Israel uh, about this same time. His name was Jeremiah. He records a super helpful uh, uh, thing for us and how the captives were supposed to respond to their relocation. This is Jeremiah 29. Watch this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Wait, you mean we're not supposed to boycott businesses and sign petitions and boy, burn our Rage Against the Machine albums and only wear Christian t-shirts and only shop at uh, Hobby Lobby and put that fish on our cars? And Nope. God says, settle in. I don't want you to be isolated. I want you to be involved. I don't want you to be indifferent. I want you to be deeply engaged. I don't want you to just go in there and build your churches and and find people like you and then shake your fist at what's happening in the world around you. He says, no, I don't want you to be separate because without contact, there can be no impact. You see, we tend to confuse with what we don't like with what God forbids. And uh, when we separate ourselves from the world, we intentionally forfeit our right to speak onto issues that are raised. That's why God says, I want you to put your lives on the line to make this place great. I want you to make it safe. I want you to make it prosperous. I want you to spread the faith. I want you to help people in need. I want you to do everything you can out of love for this city. When it prospers, you will prosper. God says way back then, and God is saying the same thing to us. Now you are part of my plan to get the word out into the world. This is my setup for a savior. So let me ask you a question. What are you doing to prosper the city that God has placed you? What are you doing to bring peace to your community? How are you pointing to people to Jesus in your everyday life? And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, that requires a Bible study at work or articulating the gospel you know, to people I just meet, but none of that is true. And None of those things require any sort of spectacular faith. You don't have to be a pastor to show compassion. You don't have to be in full-time occupational ministry to show people how much God loves them. Your schedule with God's Spirit will always lead to something supernatural. You know, God wants to move on your behalf so that you can point people to him because he knows he's the greatest answer to all their problems. Amen, somebody. That's why I want to encourage you to be involved in your local church because we're better together. Because you might not be able to share the gospel with one of your friends, but you can plug in a microphone so somebody else can. You can serve in kids' ministry so when your friends uh, bring their children, they're not worried about who's going to be watching their kids because they trust you. You can create an environment that feels comfortable so when we get to the uncomfortable part of the message where I tell them that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, they already realize that we're doing that because we love them. And we want to share the love of Jesus with them. We care for them. Can I hear a better amen, somebody? Like, this is the whole point of what we're doing today. When it comes to our culture, don't call heinous that which God has called your home. You're supposed to be living there. You're supposed to be making an impact. God brought you there for a reason. There's a purpose to your placement, and God wants you to make much of Him no matter what the people around you are doing. It's important for you to realize that the world has a strategy to keep you from succeeding at that, though. Uh, It's the same strategy Nebuchadnezzar employed to convert Daniel and his friends when they're brought to Babylon. You might jot some of these down so you can order uh, in order to recognize them later on. First is isolation. The world needs to remove you from everything that you know. Your enemy needs you listening to only you. The Bible says the devil uh, is like a prowling lion, he roams the earth looking for someone to devour. Well, who do lions devour? The gazelles by themselves. You know, that's why devil wants you off by yourself. The the sick ones, the the ones that are far back in the pack. Be careful with being alone. It's not good for you to be alone. You need to be known. That's why I want you to be part of a small group. Not because I want something from you, because I want something for you. I want you to be known. I want people uh, in your life because culture is contagious for good or for bad. And hopefully we'll get you plugged into a good one. Second thing that Nebuchadnezzar did, same thing the world wants to do, is indoctrination. Indoctrination. You need to reassess everything you thought you knew. Everything you were taught as a child needs to be unlearned as a teen. Sounds like American University to me. You know, Uh, your enemy does not need you uh, brilliant. He needs you brainwashed. He needs to convince you that his way is better than God's way. It's why Daniel had three years of transfiguration and charms and potions and herbology and defense against the dark arts. No Harry Potter fans. Okay, I'll uh, cross that out the next time I preach it. The, uh, The devil, though, he wants you calling normal what the Bible calls evil. And so he's going to indoctrinate you with some things and convince you that these aren't really that big of a deal. Third is infatuation. Infatuation. Look at what the world has to offer you. Look at what God is trying to keep from you. Look at all the things you've been missing out on. It's why the boys were marched into a city that the historian Herodotus wrote had walls 320 feet high, 80 feet thick wide enough for four horse chariots to pass one another on the left. Because even back then, if you were slow, you need to be in the right lane. What the freak are you doing? Get, get over. You know what I'm saying? Like, but it's wide enough for chariots to do the same thing. We don't know if that is, is 100% accurate, but we do know the hanging gardens of Babylon were there. We know that there were gates large enough for these huge chariots to enter in. They were adorned in gold. There was a road uh, paved in marble. The giant river Euphrates ran through the center of town. Some ancient texts describe Babylon as surpassing the splendor of any known city. Compared to modest Jerusalem, I was trying to come up with an equivalent. It's, It's like Abilene versus Amsterdam. You know what I'm saying? It's like the city that never sleeps versus the city that goes to sleep at five o'clock. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, what are you going to do? We got a Casey's, you know, famous for pizza. We got 7-Eleven over here. We're famous for slushies. You know, it's like, that's way better than pizza, but that's what, that's what infatuation is. You need to experience life. That's the message. God's holding out on you. Finally, there's identification. This isn't just about changing your name. This is about changing your identity. You might be interested to know that Daniel means God is my judge, while Belteshazzar means Baal protects. Baal is a pagan god. He's an idol. The name change is meant to complete an identity shift. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't need him identifying as Jewish anymore. He needs him identifying as Babylonian. For you, it's about becoming what you do. Oh, you're not a child of God. You're an engineer you're a school teacher. You're not a royal priesthood. You're a Caucasian. You're an African American. See, the world wants to label you because who you are is who you're attracted to. Who you are is what color your skin is. Well, that's not true. You're a child of the one true king. You're not defined by what you do. You're defined by who you know. You know Jesus Christ, I hope. So that's the world's setup. There's isolation, indoctrination, infatuation, and identification. Once you recognize that, then you can discern when do you need to deliver your punchline. Check it out. It's verse 8 when Daniel does his. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat those unacceptable foods. Now, God had given, again, there's our sovereign God, the chief of staff, both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin, what's wrong with that? Ashpenaz, jerk, pale and thin is fine. But if you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after him and his friends. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. Now watch this, verse 17. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them 10 times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Fill this in in your notes. When you draw your line in the sand, make sure it points people to Jesus. Make sure it points them to the foot of the cross when you draw your line in the sand, make sure it leads to the foot of the cross. Daniel knew the difference between sin and the things he found personally offensive or distasteful. Now, he never confused the two. He knew when it was time to deliver his punchline, and he knew when it was just time to keep following the setup. Daniel knew that eating the king's food meant participating in an act of idolatry. Not only had God forbidden the food on the menu for Uh, good Jewish boys and girls. But in Babylon, the king's food was first sacrificed to pagan gods, gods of health and wealth. They sacrificed the food and then they served it to the king. So Daniel knew he'd be breaking two commands of God's laws. Don't eat this food and don't participate in worship. Uh, That was his line in the sand. And the way he handled it was with such grace. There's a humility about his rejection of the food. He said, please, please, there's a wisdom with how he handles the intendant. Daniel earned the right to be heard. Compare that with the thing, how he handled the other things that were forced on him. He didn't reject his name change. He showed indifference when he was forced to study the occult for three years I'm sure if it was an elective, he would have skipped the course, but this was core curriculum in order for him to graduate. So he decided he'd graduate at the top of the class and catch this. God gave him the ability to do that. Why would God do that? Oh, because he forbids the practice of astrology, but the scriptures say nothing about studying it. I did contend that learning the uh, battle tactics of your enemy is usually a good idea. Yet many of us are encouraged to opt out of something as if taking the course is the same as endorsing the course. And it's not. And listen, this is, this is so huge because in Matthew chapter 2, it tells us about these wise men, these magi, these magicians that came from the east because they saw a star and it led them to King Jesus. Where is Babylon compared to Bethlehem? Oh, it's east. Well, who do you think taught them to look to the stars for a coming savior? Mm-mm, probably Daniel. Because the last uh, verse in Daniel chapter one reads, Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. That's roughly 70 years and four other kings that Daniel remained in the royal service, which is a pretty good indicator that Daniel had a far reaching impact within the culture of Babylon. The point is, God gave Daniel a setup, most of us would call a setback, and instead of compromising his character, Daniel decided to drive people to Christ, Amen. to the coming Savior. His faith in God was greater than his fear of men. He didn't buy into the lie that you don't matter. You're just one person in the midst of millions. What can you do? A lot with the power of God, more than you think or imagine. You're perfectly poised to the, be the power of Jesus to the people where God has placed you. You know what I'm talking about. Like, you can use what God has given you. You might be the closest thing to Jesus somebody meets. How are you pointing them to the foot of the cross? The band's going to come up and close us in a song, but as I do, I want to ask you a couple of questions because I want your Monday to look different now that you came to church on Sunday. Like, like how can all of this make a difference in my life this week. Well, I I think some of you need to figure out where you're drawing in your lines in the sand. Is that pointing people to Jesus? Or are you winning a battle yet losing the war? Taking a stand does nothing if it doesn't draw them to the Savior. Ask yourself, is this something sinful or do I just not like it? Because like I said, you might be the closest thing to Jesus somebody meets, and you can still let pagans live like pagans while living your own godly life in full view. And then when the time comes, you'll have earned your right to be heard. So the question is, when and where do I need to deliver my punchline? Is it at work? Is my boss asking me to do something immoral? Is it at school? Are your friends trying to convince you that their way is better than God's way, like God is trying to keep something from you? Is it with your kids? Is it with your money? Is it with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Is it with your spouse? Where do you need to deliver your punchline? Wherever it is, make sure it points people to Jesus, because there are people all over this world who need to know that there is a God in heaven who loves them. He loved them so much that He made a way for them to live forever with Him. That way is through Jesus. And only Jesus can give you what you're looking for. All those things you're trying to find happiness in, all those things you're trying to find purpose in, uh, they lead nowhere. It can only be found in Jesus. And on some level, I'm sure you realize that's true. It's why you're here. Because God has placed eternity in your heart. He's drawing you to something bigger than yourself. You're looking for God. And you can find God through Jesus and the power of His Holy Spirit. I believe there are people here this morning who, who need to trust in Jesus. You might have been coming to church your entire life. You've never actually developed this relationship with Jesus in and, and an effort to help lead other people to Jesus. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to give you an opportunity right now to say my life is going to forever change. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you'll be saved. So I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer with me, not because there's magic in a prayer, but because uh, God wants you to acknowledge in your heart that you have fallen short of his standards. So just say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I haven't lived the way you want me to. But I believe in Jesus. I believe He died on a cross for me. I believe He rose from the dead. And because of that, I'm made new. Thank you for saving me. Help me live for you. God, I thank you for new life through your son, Jesus. I thank you for all the lives represented here. I know every person come in here with a story and I just ask you to help them figure out how they can share their story with others. Where does their line in the sand need to be drawn, Jesus? Only you can help them with that. Help them figure out where they can deliver their punchline. Make sure they're leading people to Jesus God help each one of us as we walk out these doors today to see the world as beautiful because you created it and you're in control of those who are in control we trust your sovereign power God but we want to be part of your story in redeeming this world help us take things in our culture and point people back to you God, You're a good Father. We thank You and we praise You for all the love that You've given us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.